Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm, please visit excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome to the conversation on Colloquium. Today I have with me a very special guest, our COO, former controller, Jared Arnold. And to set the stage, this is going to be a little bit of a different episode. We're doing kind of a partial interview of a team member and then also a a look back on the year as we're recording this December 22nd. It's, It's been a big year for us and we thought it'd be good to have more of a fireside chat type conversation to to go back and really assess everything that's happened over the last 12 months. It's, it's been a wild year for a lot of people. Jared, why don't you kind of give a little bit of background on yourself and introduction, set the table. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for having me, Brian. Really been looking forward to this. Graduated from Ole Miss in, in 2014 with my master's degree in accounting and immediately went into the public accounting field Spent about five years there with three different firms, started with BDO, a large international firm here in Nashville, and then moved to Austin, Texas for a few years and worked for a large regional firm there. And then finished out uh, the public accounting career in here in Nashville with a large local firm, Craft CPAs. And kind of going back into that 2019 tax year after the, the big tax law changes had you know, worked a lot of hours, was kind of beat down and, and looking for something different. And, you know, the opportunity with you all came across my table and I jumped on it immediately. It was a great opportunity. And I could tell that from the get go and, and just kind of jumped in with both feet. And so now here I am two and a half years later with Excelsior and things are moving along. What was your, I guess, initial reaction? Were you actively looking for a new opportunity? I mean, did you have your antenna up knowing you wanted to leave public accounting? Yeah, it was one of those things where, you know, going into that year, I'd made it, I'd been promoted to manager, which for most, you know, careers is is a very fast career track. I had done it in less than five years. That's kind of five years is kind of that minimum for making it to manager. 
so, you know, at that point in time, you know, January of 2019, it was definitely not something that was considered by me. You know, it seemed like I was on a track to be a, a partner in the public accounting, you know, career field, which had kind of been my goal at the time. But then after that tax season, after, you know, being beat down, I mean, I had multiple 100 hour weeks, uh, multiple 90 hour weeks in there as well. I think for 13 straight weeks, I didn't work less than probably 85 hours. And, you know, get done with the tax season. It's kind of like this adrenaline rush. You're looking forward to that summer, a little bit of downtime. And all of a sudden, I just didn't see an end in sight. And so it just had a, a, a breaking point in there one day. And it just so happened that this job came across, this opportunity, this, this career came across my table literally that same day from three different people. So it's one of those things where you just kind of take it as a sign. And, and I did. And I try not to be someone that, that that kind of, you know, jumps back and forth between different options. I make up my mind and I jump in and I just go for it. And then and I haven't looked back since. What do you remember about the initial coffee meeting that we had? <laughs> was it just me? I don't remember. Was somebody else no. have Sam with me? Yeah, you had Sam and William both with you. The initial one was just at the Starbucks uh, around the corner from the office. And then we ended up having a follow-up one. I can't remember what the place is called, but they're on West End as well. The first one... Three brothers, three brothers coffee, three brothers. That's right. Yeah. The first one, I don't know that I have any major takeaways other than, you know, just listening to you and and you had talked about, you know, kind of your network and where you had been over the last 10 years. And I just found it all very intriguing. And you talked about some of the lessons that you had learned as well. It just seemed like I could learn a lot. It seemed like you guys had a lot of knowledge and not only the real estate space, but just in terms of dealing with investors and whatnot, it just seemed like I had a lot to learn, but then also a lot that I could provide. And then the second meeting was more of just like getting to know each other and seeing if it was more of a culture fit, which obviously it was. I mean, you know, here we are two and a half years later, over two and a half years later from that initial meeting in May of 2019. And, you know, not only do we have a a great culture within the original team members, but we're kind of building on that as well. And it worked out well. I mean, I think you were like our fourth or fifth pick, you know, in terms of options available and everyone else passed. And, you know, we were grateful to have you. And I'm just, I'm going to give Jared a hard time, you know, for people listening, I don't talk about the team very much on, on the show, but as Jared alluded to, when I started the company Excelsior, there were three things that were mission critical to do right off the bat. One, hire a marketing person, which we're going to get into. Two, have a robust investor relations solution, which we'll also go into dig into. And the third was hiring a controller who is the CPA with a public accounting tax background. That was like one of the main initiatives that I knew needed to happen right away. And so we went, met Jared, it was a done deal. And he's been my ride or die since we started the firm. And it's been quite a journey. Let's talk about kind of day one what was that transition for you from public accounting world, K1 tax place to being, I don't even know how to describe your job today, but air traffic controller of a, <laughs> of a growing company, maybe? What, yeah. what was that like moving over? Well, I just first want to say, if you're the fourth or fifth pick of a professional sports league, that's really not that bad. So, you know, I, I take that as a compliment, I guess. But no, jumping over from public accounting, I mean, I was in the tax world and I really don't think, I mean, obviously the work is a little bit different from tax and audit, but in terms of what you do on a day-to-day basis, it's relatively the same no matter which side of the aisle you're on there. There's a ton of, you know, a multitude of different tax, you know, items that you can see across the year. 
But what you do on a daily basis is basically the same thing, right? You're doing some sort of compliance, a lot of research, things like that. And then, you know, preparing or reviewing or whatever it might be, the tax return. Coming over, you know, to Excelsior, I think the first thing that really jumped out to me was just the multitude of different things that I would do on a daily basis. I think my favorite question that I get, and I got it a lot this weekend, hanging out with some friends in in Park City uh, and meeting a lot of new people was, what do you do on a daily basis? And to be honest, I can't really answer that because every day is so much different. But that's what excites me about it, right? I'm not going, sitting at the same place every single day doing the exact same thing. Every day is so different. I might be at home. I might be traveling, looking at an asset. I might be going to Park City and working at an airport for half a day. Every day is completely different, whether you know, you're looking at location or what, whether you're looking at what I do on a daily basis. And Tim Ferriss, who we, we both are a big fan of, says that when that is your answer to that question, I'm not sure every day is different means you have a specific skill set, which I think is important for people to take away because oftentimes I know in working world, people kind of see CPA or tax professional and they think that they just live in this little box, right? This like subject matter expertise. But the reality is as you've grown within the company, you do everything from asset management to investor relations, to accounting, to bookkeeping. I mean, you, you touch everything, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm certainly not an expert in any of those fields, but I'm involved in all of it. And I think you use the term air traffic controller. Um, that's really how I try to see myself and, and, and just kind of directing the team in, in a certain pathway that it, we're all moving in the same direction, even though we're coming from from different, you know, quote unquote, departments of the team. You know, we're all focused and moving in that same direction. And I've talked about this as a guest on shows, but really never got into it on, on this show. But when we when I started the company, I guess it was three years ago now. I think that's right. We had basically a bad website. And you know, when I brought Jared on board, we simultaneously you helped with the selection process for Juniper and also was Ashley already on board, our marketing person? She came on. I started in June of twenty nineteen. I want to say we started using her officially in like September, October, November time range of twenty nineteen. Okay. So Let's start with the marketing side, and then we'll go into investor relations. What do you remember about that ramp up process? And could you maybe help give people perspective on on where we were from a marketing perspective to where we are currently? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can remember, you know, in that first, those first two initial coffee meetings, as we were kind of talking about where Excelsior was and, you know, what we wanted to accomplish and whatnot, you know, Sam and William had mentioned that there was going to be a website up sometime during that summer or something like that, that it wasn't ready yet. We were still in the startup phase, you know, whatever. And then, you know, I came on in June, like I said, and I think I want to say the website rolled out in like July or August of 2019. And it was essentially just, you know, ExcelsiorGP.com, go there, phone number, uh, maybe a few photos or something like that. And that was it. And I can remember that fall sitting in what is now Sam and William's office and talking about how we needed to just have more than like a contact page and trying to build out that website. And this was pre-Ashley. So it's kind of funny looking back and seeing, you know, hey, we literally all we had was like how to get a hold of us and, and just prove that we were real. And then now we've built it into this resource for investors, prospective investors, or just people that want to learn about whatever we find interesting. Yeah. And so Ashley Kent is our marketing consultant. She's a third-party operator. She's fantastic and really has been a total game changer for us. And like Jared said, 
we had this crummy website at that point. And now we just relaunched the new website, but we have a full-blown content calendar. We have a social media strategy around LinkedIn. We now have our own podcast. We have a strategy for me to be a guest on other people's podcasts. We've done webinars. We have our Capital Club, which has really been a huge success. And we do all kinds of video and content creation and co-branded content and collaborations with other professionals. All that being said, Jared, what do you think has been kind of the best use of resources within the marketing space? And then where have we struggled or where do you think we can make improvements on that end? Yeah, I mean, obviously building out that website was huge for us. It made a big difference in terms of what we provide and kind of how we look out there within the environment. But beyond that, you know, early on in, in COVID, when people were kind of sitting around and, and at home and juggling multiple different things and, and whatnot, I think a, a big escape for them or maybe just, you know, downtime and trying to learn more was was our webinars. And that was a huge benefit to us and allowing us to, to gain credibility, gain contacts, kind of grow our network and things like that. Eventually, at some point, I think that kind of ran out to some degree. People went back to work. They were, you know, busy. They were still trying to homeschool their kids or whatever it might be. Things got a little crazy in there and it it wasn't as advantageous for us anymore. But then around that same time, we switched to the Capital Club, which, you know, obviously you're very familiar with since you're the one that pretty much runs it at this point. But I think that's been great because we're seen as a, a little bit different than probably others in our field. Because we're trying to be a resource other than just the investments that we provide, right? We're showing our network, our investors, other investments that they could participate in. And we're not getting any sort of fee on that whatsoever. We're just trying to be a resource. And that's kind of been our goal since day one is if you invest with us, that's great. We want to take care of you and we're going to do so. But more than not, we want to kind of break the noise and be that resource for for people. Yeah. And, and the way we think about this, if, if you're listening and thinking through your marketing strategy for next year, the way we talk about it internally is education, access, and network, affinity group, community. Those are the three kind of pillars that we think create value for prospective investors and that would attract the folks that we want to work with long-term in terms of partners and clients. And it also, the I think the Capital Club and a lot of other things that you mentioned, the way that we think about it is a, a parking lot for people. So it, it, if you connect with us through LinkedIn or email or whatever, previously, it was really binary. We were going to pitch you and you would come in on a deal or not. And there was really no third option. But the, the Capital Club and these other resources we put out there acts as a place for you to get to know us over time without us just straight pitching you, right? And you can develop that relationship. You can deepen it. And again, like you said, be a resource. And then eventually when the timing is right and you feel comfortable, you can come in an opportunity on an investment. And, and so the way we've thought about marketing and just inbound marketing in general, totally different. And I've talked about this on, on other shows. We used to be kind of that hard charging coffee, lunch, phone call, ground and pound, hard pitching. And it did work to some extent, but the way we think about sales and marketing now is completely different. I tell Jared all this time, and there's a dynamic within the firm, but I really truly believe that we are a media company at this point that offers people real estate investments. So along those lines, can you talk through the investor relations 
platform in terms of the RFP process, Juniper, and I know I hammered you on this when we first had coffee mm-hmm. and where things stand today in terms of how we think about the investor journey. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think one of the first things you hammered me on in that first meeting was, I don't care what you do, but please get K-1s out on time. So that, that was obviously part one, which I kind of see as falling under investor relations and not so much accounting. Obviously, there's a lot of work that has to be done up front there to make sure that things are moving smoothly and then going along the process to make sure that those get done. But it, and for the most part is it falls under investor relations in that, you know, we're getting it out on time and it is a very large piece of our communication with our investors. So, you know, that was the main point that I was looking for. And even when we were looking at Juniper Square and some of these other providers is, okay, well, what can you provide that's going to allow us to get those out as quickly as possible? So kind of going through that, that bake-off and looking at, you know, what they offered, how quickly we could get them out. That was the main point. Because if, if you take a step back and you look at, you know, when we were sending out those, I guess it would be 2018 K-1s, I mean, you were going through email by email and sending out K-1s on an individual basis, trying to make sure that they were secured. There could be anyway, missteps along the way, either you attached the wrong K-1 to the wrong email, or maybe you forgot to hit the secure button, whatever it might be. But then you, you go forward into 2020 when we were sending out 2019 K-1s, you know, I get those in a folder, I throw them into Juniper Square, it sorts it out into the correct account to, to go to the investor. And then I type up one email that gets sent out to all investors and attaches that correct K-1, completely streamlined the process and, you know, made my life easier, obviously, but I think the investors have appreciated it because what it allowed us to do, and I don't talk about this as much when we're talking about Juniper Square and the investor relations software is that when we are able to streamline those processes, we're, we're able to go into much more detail and provide investors a lot more information on the front end and think about, you know, our quarterly reports, right? If you're sending out quarterly reports on a very individual basis, right? You're typing up one email, trying to copy and paste it, and it's old school Gmail, whatever that might be, that takes a lot of time. And so you're not able to do as much preparing on the front end and giving investors detail. I think one of the biggest transitions we've seen in our investor relations abilities, I guess, is that we are able to spend all the time we need giving investors information on the front end, whether that be from a regular communication reporting standpoint, whether it be from an acquisition standpoint, when we're sending out new deals, we're giving investors all the information that we have at that current moment. And we're spending less time on sending out the emails. And so one of the things that that obviously does is, you know, we're not in the weeds of sending out individual emails, but we're also giving investors so much information that they, we don't have as many follow-up questions from them. And I think that's huge, right? I mean, we're, they're able to, to look at all the information, study it, analyze it, whether it be, like I said, from the, you know, asset management, typical quarterly reports, monthly financials, or a new deal, and they're able to figure out whatever they need to figure out. And so the questions that I receive on a daily basis has decreased, you know, by a lot. I just don't get those as much as I used to, which is huge. Yeah, it's efficiency for us and for the investors, right? I think that's the takeaway. When we talk about some of these improvements we made, it, it can almost seem self-serving, like, oh, it makes our lives easier as a sponsor GP. But the reality is LPs and investors also have limited time. And they're looking at a lot of different opportunities. They're typically working professionals with families. And so all of these improvements we made hopefully save them time and energy, and they can make decisions quicker. They get the information accessible when they want it, how they want it. And to go kind of granular here, 
we send out monthly distributions, right? We send out monthly financial statements from the asset itself. We send out quarterly reports, which go in-depth into what's happening in the property, what's happening in that market. And we also leverage video. So we'll interview the property manager and or the leasing broker on a particular property to get their assessment of what's happening there on a, on a quarterly basis. Because we realize people digest information differently. Some people like to read the emails. Some people like to listen to the video, watch the video. And so we just are as transparent as possible and give people as much information as we possibly can. And it does decrease the phone calls and the messages and, and the notes. And it reassures people, right? I mean, it's cliche, but this is a trust business. And the way that you establish that trust, in my opinion, is through communication and really taking investor relations seriously. And so we really pride ourselves on all of those things. And it's really shown through over the last year. Maybe talk through the CRM and what it was like when you first started and to what it's like today and how that ties into our efforts on investor relations and and marketing and, and fundraising. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's important to note here that we want to communicate with our investor base or just our general network as much as possible, right? Either you know, talking about what we're doing internally or, you know, having announcements or being that resource that we spoke about earlier. And so when, when we came on, everything was just kind of managed like on that individual email basis. We had kind of an Excel tracker of keeping, you know, track of what we had done, what we hadn't or whatever it might be. And so one of the first things in, in working with with Ashley, our third party marketing um, advisor is is that we wanted to kind of streamline that process as well, similar to what we had done on the typical invest relations communication reporting. And it was very transparent or very apparent that Juniper Square, we love it. We preach on that all the time. It it served the purpose of being an investor relations software. It was very apparent that it it had some lacking in terms of a, a typical CRM and communicating with our our network as a whole, which at this point has grown to what, 7,000 people. So, you know, we started with ActiveCampaign, which is a great software, kind of served a purpose for a while. It allowed us to scale, you know, from 1,500 people, I think in January of 2020 to roughly 5,000 people or so, 4,500 at the end of 2020. And now, like I said, we're up to 7,500 people that we communicate on a regular basis within our, our network. The downfall of Active Campaign was that it didn't provide us kind of an inside look into certain statistics that we want to measure to gauge, you know, what our network likes, what they don't, what they're interested in, and things like that. So, you know, you asked earlier what we could kind of grow on. Late this fall, we rolled out uh, HubSpot, and it's been great for us. But I think one of the things that we can kind of grow on in, in, over the next year is kind of learning that software and improving how we utilize it to, to reach out to that network. So let's get into kind of the year in review. And you referenced this earlier, and we've gotten compliments along these lines of during that first kind of lockdown quarantine period that, that weird year two years ago that started spring break in March, we played offense, right? Where a lot of people just kind of were holding on and playing defense. We, we had a lot to handle across the portfolio. But in terms of building out the infrastructure, the marketing and the content creation, we were very thoughtful and forward thinking about how we wanted to build the company. And Jared and I talked about this all the time during that period. And it was the first time in my 10 years of doing this business where things were quiet enough that you could actually think through 
deeply what you wanted to achieve. And we weren't traveling, obviously. We didn't have a lot of deals moving. So could you kind of rewind the tape and, and recall what some of those conversations looked like and how we spent that down period where we, I think we did what, one transaction post COVID, maybe two small ones? Yeah, when we were closing one deal in early of March of 2020, right before COVID happened. And then we closed one during COVID in, I believe it was June of 2020. And then one late December, I think it was December 23rd of 2020. So during that time period, I mean, as you know, we were still making distributions, things like that. We were lucky enough to where we didn't have too many issues or anything like that from a portfolio standpoint. From an accounting, at that point, I was controller. From an accounting standpoint, my job really hadn't changed. I didn't have a, a ton of downtime from that perspective. But because we were kind of pressing pause there from an acquisition standpoint, and investors were relatively quiet at that time in terms of asking questions and whatnot, I think they just kind of understood that a lot was going on in the world. I had a lot of free time to, to just kind of talk with you and, and go over those things that at that point, I'd been there a year. We had talked about these things that we wanted to fix for the last year. It's just that we didn't have time because we were always, you know, working on other things and whatnot. So COVID, as bad as it is, right? Like you hate to use it as kind of a positive, but it, it, in some degree, it was a positive for us because it allowed us to kind of slow things down and really analyze, you know, how we took an approach to investors, investor relations, communication, reporting, you know, what we did on the accounting side, acquisitions, all that stuff, just really analyze what we were doing and how we could improve that investor journey. And so obviously we've now, you know, been around the world, around the sun, you know, a full time now, full year, we've seen the benefits of it. And so now we're just consistently focusing on that every day, day in and day out, to, you know, how can we improve it? Even though the world's somewhat back to normal, we have a lot going on and whatnot, we are focus on this every single day. How can we improve that investor journey? And that, that's involved in all of our conversations, whether it be you know our asset management meeting or marketing meeting, it doesn't matter. What can we do to improve that investor relations journey? And to get detailed here, previously, when we would go raise a deal, like we're syndicators, right? So we raise deal by deal. We distribute to a network of individuals and, and family offices and boutique wealth management firms, accredited but non-institutional investors. Previously, we would send them a teaser, right? And I'm going to try to not use too much jargon here, but it's really hard in our industry. We've been doing this too long. We send out a one-pager, right? So just a tear sheet of summary of the investment opportunity. And in the email, you have a couple of bullet points, some highlights on the deal. And then you invite them to have a coffee or a call, or in today's world, a Zoom, I guess, to discuss it. And then you know you wait for them to coordinate the call, or the meeting if they're in town, or if they're a big relationship, maybe they want you to come to them. And then you give them the full deck, right? The full PowerPoint presentation, the model, the diligence package. And it's kind of like this song and dance that goes on for 30, 45 days where they're conducting their diligence. You're lining up all these calls and meetings, and you're kind of pushing through that capital raising sales process. Well, during the quarantine, Jared and I put together a different system where when we send somebody an opportunity, we take much more time on the front end prepping it, but we give them everything now. So the one pager, the deck, the diligence file, the model, we do drone footage with a pitch subtitled overlay. And then we videotape a pitch where I pretend to be the investor. Whoever's running the deal on the acquisition side will pitch me the deal. We'll run through frequently asked questions, pros and cons. 
And the goal is within 10 minutes, maybe 20 minutes max, that investor can really get a sense of what the opportunity is, as much detail as they want to get into, high level, et cetera. And they can choose on their own, you know, whether they want to participate or not without necessarily having to do a call with me or meet with me. And the goal here is that through that content creation, that marketing effort that we've done on the front end, they know exactly who we are, who we work with and what we do. So we take that part of the pitch out, right? We don't need to give them the overview on who we are, what we do, because they already know. And then we give them everything about the deal. So we empower them to make that choice on their own time. And when we actually had an investor who was literally on a plane headed to Europe over the North Atlantic, got one of the investment opportunities, was able to take a look at it, reviewed everything. He had been a previous investor, right? So we'd built that relationship and he committed over email and he complimented us by saying, this is really great what you guys have done because it takes care of some of that time and energy and and effort that I previously had to put in unnecessarily, right? I mean, I think the realization that was hard for me on my ego was that people didn't necessarily want to have a two hour steak dinner with me and hear how great I am. They just wanted to see the deal and decide on their own whether or not they wanted to come in. So Jared, my question for you is, how is the marketing and the investor relations in Juniper all tied in to increase that velocity of capital raising, which therefore helps us increase the the quality and the quantity of acquisitions we're able to make? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is one of my favorite topics to talk about because, you know, late I guess mid to late 2020, we were sitting back and looking at this whole acquisitions process. And, you know, it was just the way it was done, right? Like you took up that whole due diligence period raising equity, and that's just the way that that everyone did it. And so thinking back to, you know, those conversations that you and I had, you know, mid to late 2020 and talking about, okay, well, if I was the investor and I get this teaser, then I get this next piece of information and you're always waiting for that next piece it becomes very hard to make a decision and it becomes this like very drawn out process. And so, you know, like you said earlier, it, it can almost seem self-serving in terms of talking about some of these benefits and how much more efficient it makes our time. But really the goal from day one was trying to be cognizant of how much time we were taking from the investor and trying to pr- improve on that. And so giving all of that information to them at the beginning, right? We're, pr- we're providing everything they could possibly want, everything we provide our lender, Everything that we analyze is included in our data room, and they're able to make a decision so much faster instead of having one, two, three, four, five conversations with us. You know, maybe they have one where they jotted down a couple of questions based on the information that they were reviewing. We answer them. It takes 20 minutes. They make a decision. They email us. Let's move forward or let's not move forward. This isn't the deal for me because it doesn't fit within my investment criteria. And in our world, receiving that no quickly is just as good as a yes, right? Because it allows us to focus our attention on the investors that will want to come into this deal because it it fits within their investment criteria. And so, you know, looking back at 2020, we closed the deal on December 23rd. Like I mentioned earlier, that deal took us like six weeks to raise. We're in the middle of kind of overhauling our process. Then January of, of 2021, we kind of flipped the switch on rolled out that new process. And the first deal that that we rolled out, closed, we closed the raise in, in less than a week, which was incredible at the time. I think we closed that deal in, in March of 2021 or something like that. And then February of 2021, we rolled out that second deal and we finished the raise in less than 12 hours, which I was mind blown. I mean, like I can remember sitting at waking up, I'm an early riser, you know, getting ready to work out or whatever that morning. 
And we got the email literally like four minutes until the 12 hour mark when we had first sent out that first email saying that, you know, I'll take whatever you have or I'll do whatever the number was. And it was the end of our raise in less, just under 12 hours. Obviously at that point in time, you know, we were, the world was kind of turning, right? Like money was being put to work. A lot of investors were, were kind of back in the game, so to speak, but yet still working from home and still had some downtime. So it was a little bit different environment that we are in now, but, you know, now our goal is to be able to do that in less than a week. And I think the infrastructure that, that we, you know, put into place does so. And it's not, like you said earlier, we're not coming to that, you know, goal from a self-serving perspective, but more so from, okay, we want to make sure that the investor has all the information that they could possibly want to make a decision. And I think we've done a very good job of executing on it. Obviously, there's still room for growth. We're working on that. And we never want to be content from that perspective. But, you know, I think it's proven itself over the last year. And I really look forward to what's to come on on this next year. I think we're already seeing a lot of momentum going into 2022 that we didn't, not that we didn't have in 2021, but we just didn't, we didn't know that we had it. So it was very difficult early in the year to kind of execute on that momentum um, that we have now. And to give people perspective, when we used to do this before, I would manually send those emails out. Like literally, I'd have a sheet, an Excel file of 100 contacts or whatever. And I would input the subject line and do a parenthesis of each individual contact so that I could track who was responding. And then we would every day at the end of the day, kind of go through and color code who responded, who didn't respond, who needed what follow-up, who was asking for which diligence, who had what phone call or coffee meeting amongst the various team members. And that's how we track things, right? And and we talk about this internally, or when I talk to other sponsors and GPs who, who often don't want to talk about capital raising or sales, but it's important that you have a really good infrastructure and team and a focus on this because in our business, you can't grow and you can't have lower minimums and you can't afford people access to more diverse opportunities unless you can raise around those deals. And so as an investor, I think it's really important to realize that we do spend a lot of time and energy here because it directly benefits the end user, the client, the partner at the end of the day. And Jared talked about this, you know, these capital raises, you know, knock on wood, we're trying to close a deal today. Previously, three to four acquisitions would have been a big year for us. Maybe I think we did five one year, but we're hopefully closing our ninth acquisition this calendar year. Jared, what are some of the, you did this for the year and wrap up. What are some of the stats? You have them in front of you in terms of what we've done? No, I mean, I don't have them in front of me, but you know, this is, this kind of continues on for one of my favorite topics. And I want to provide some context and then kind of make a point. You know, we did three deals in 2019, somehow through COVID did three deals in, in 2020 as well. In 2021, we've now done nine deals. And that also includes passing on on three late in kind of our due diligence process for one reason or another. And so, you know, the point that I want to make there is, you know, I don't want this to sound like we're deal junkies in any way, shape or form. But in 2019 and 2020, we were having to turn away very intriguing investment opportunities that were coming across our plate because we just didn't have the infrastructure to be able to handle it. And, you know, kind of looking back into 2020 and early 2021, I think we, every single deal that we push out, we believe in, like I said, we passed on three for one reason or another, because something came to us that no, we no longer believed necessarily not in the deal, but maybe there was more risk or something that we came to later on in in that due diligence process 
I don't want it to sound like we're tail chunkies anyway. It's just that our infrastructure allows us to focus on the opportunities that are out there. And I think that's really important. Talk about some of the, the human capital, the team, the growth, the roles, and how your particular role in the leadership position within the firm has evolved over the last 12, 24 months. Yeah, absolutely. We've tried to utilize technology the best that we could from the get-go. So we've always been a relatively small team and we use third parties as much as we possibly can, as long as it makes financial sense for the GP. But, you know, during 2021, we've added, or I guess, you know, late 2020, we added an asset manager, 2021 added an asset manager. We've added an accounting staff who is the new controller. We've added internal marketing individual. And so we've seen a lot of growth in the last year from a team perspective. And that's, you know, not to say that we have some affinity for adding team members and it, and it makes us feel good because our team is growing. It's these were necessary steps to kind of take that next step in building that infrastructure out. And, you know, at this point, you know, we've been so strategic in how we do so that I really think that we can handle, you know, some volume of where we are right now without having to add more overhead to the GP, which is a very, you know, important aspect. I, I know I hear you talk about it on, on the podcast a lot. Is like one of the biggest realizations that you had is that you're also running a business. And so we also have to think of it from that perspective that we're not constantly focused on just acquisitions or asset management, but we're also running the business to make sure that we're here tomorrow and able to serve our investors and our network in a way that we think is, is the right way to do it. Has it been hard for you to step out of some of the minutia and the detail and to actually take things off your plate so you can think strategically about how to grow the company? Yeah. I mean, it's a struggle every day, man. I mean, I like to have a sort of control. A lot of us are like this, right? I mean, we're very type A people to some degree. I like to have control over what's going on, whether it be calculating distributions or whatever. I was talking with Taylor, our new controller about this, you know, yesterday, I trust her. I know that the distributions got done and they were done correctly. But this was my first time not being involved in that process other than to just kind of check it. And so I just have like this internal fear that something's happened and I don't know about it. You know, that's one of the struggles and that's part of kind of moving on to that next role, right? I mean, you and I talk about the the Netflix book, you know, quite often and, and some of the points that he made in there. And at some point you have to trust that the people that you hired can do the job that you hired them to do. And so that, you know, that's been tough for me, but at the end of the day, it's also been rewarding, right? Because, you know, we're bringing on these new individuals, these new team members, we're showing them kind of the direction that we want to go and, and how to accomplish that. And then we're just kind of guiding them to make sure that we're all moving in the same direction. And, and that's a lot of fun. So I've found a lot of, you know, I've gained a lot of reward from that. Yeah. Read Hastings book, if what you haven't checked it out definitely do so about how he thinks about running Netflix and his management style. It can be hard to give people that authority, but if you want the company to grow, you've got to be highest and best use to the enterprise. And right now, you know, calculating distributions probably is not your highest and best use for the enterprise today. And so I think that's a good example. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're in the middle of, you know, preparing for K ones and, and, and years past, I've been very involved in that, that process. And that's just not, it's not the highest and best use of my time, you know, over the next two to three months, you know, we want to make sure we roll those out in February. So we're very focused on that. And I'm kind of overseeing that process to some degree still because, you know, Taylor is new, but I'm not involved in the weeds of it. And, you know, that makes a huge difference. And it's been a lot of fun for me to not have to deal with that on a daily basis. Yeah. So we've covered a lot of ground on what happened this past year. What's on tap for next year? 
I mean, we we're actually doing a sit down, I guess, first week of January to go over some of this. We've been sprinting to the finish line here. We closed a deal last week, I think, right? And trying to get one done today. We've got three that we're raising on for Q1. But in, in your opinion, you know, what are your priorities for next yeah, year? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so the last two years, and I'll do it again this year, I sit down the week after Christmas and I just kind of do a deep dive analysis into how the year went and kind of how I think that the following year is, is going to go. So, you know, I, I don't have too many things, you know, necessarily top of mind at the moment that'll kind of come next week. But the first thing that comes to mind is just kind of riding that momentum of 2021 and making sure that we are continuing to grow, continuing to take care of our investors, improving that investor relations process and that communication and reporting you know, day in and day out without losing focus on it and then not becoming content. We've seen a lot of growth over the last year or so. And I don't want that to to lead us into a point of contentment to where we stop executing on the things that have been important to us over the last year. And just continuing to learn and tweak things in, in small ways that make big differences, right? You know, for instance, we focus on those quarterly reports. It's a big importance for us. And so I think investors appreciate the current format and whatnot of our quarterly reports, but we can tweak it a little bit to make a just, you know, small differences that will make a big importance to to kind of how our investors look at that. So that's kind of my focus going into 2022. And I kind of, that's how I expect next week to go. I look forward, I think that's fun kind of looking back and analyzing and then projecting where we want to go in the next year. You know, last year, I, I was looking over the report from last year that I put together. I had an internal goal to hit five to six acquisitions last year. So it's kind of fun to see like how I was right and how I was wrong. We've done nine. But in terms of where we saw growing the team, asset manager, marketing, accounting, we hit all three of those. So it's kind of fun to look back at those. I put it down on paper and, and kind of look at the goals for the year and see where we hit and where we miss and for the what reasons and whether they were, you know, good misses or bad misses or whatever it might be. It's I'm really looking forward to doing that next week. Yeah, that's funny that you're looking back on what you did last year. Yeah, I, I think from my perspective, it's doubling, tripling down on this multimedia concept where be it investor relations, be it marketing, capital raising, we need to continue to expand our funnel of how we connect with people and how we can provide value to them. So I think maybe doing something beyond LinkedIn, doing more video-based content, more collaboration and and more educational resource-oriented marketing is going to be where we need to, to spend time. And so I'm excited for that one. And yeah, it can be challenging for type A folks like us. When you have a big year, you immediately think, well, we just need to do better next year, right? But I don't want to fall into a trap where we just work harder. I think we need to continue to work smarter, right? And I'm not a big believer in setting up necessarily goal. I mean, I think it's good to have, I hope we do five or six acquisitions, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm not going to go out there and make a big statement about what's going to happen next year in terms of acquisitions or AUM or anything like that. That's not how I think about the business. But I'm thankful to have you around for the ride. We're we're bumping up against 50 minutes here. Anything else you want to add in? Got anything for me? No, I mean, I don't think so. I mean, this has been a great ride and to date, and I'm really looking forward to kind of what the future holds. I think, you know, one of my biggest takeaways from this year and just talking to my peer network and family members who are small business owners and things like that is that it's so easy to you experience growth like this and to kind of have a little bit of a to you know, a little bit of an ego push to some degree and think that, you know, you are more intelligent than you were 
a year ago. And so, you know, one of the things that I think is very important for us and one of the reasons why I think you and I are so aligned is that we're constantly trying to listen to our investors and our network and, you know, what we're doing right and what we're doing wrong and not necessarily feel that we know the answer, but try to find out the answer from them. And so that's one of the things that I want to focus on the next year is continuing to try to be that resource, continue to try to listen to them. I think I've heard you make this point a couple of times as well. And another reason why I think we're so aligned is the more you give, the more that you get back. And I don't mean that from a, you know, a self-serving perspective, but as long as we're focusing on continuing to give to our network, then I think we're going to, you know, a lot of good is going to come back to us. And so, you know, I just don't want to lose that perspective. And that's kind of my focus going forward here is just give to the team, give to our investors, give to the partners as much as we possibly can. And I think we're all aligned in that way. And we're going to see some great return across the Excelsior ecosystem over the next two to five years. Nobody cares. Work harder, right? It's our <laughs> internal right. It's our internal saying, you know, Jared and I came from kind of big law background, corporate firm, and Jared, obviously, public accounting. And it's like my dad used to say that the beatings will continue until morale improves. We always joke around about when you've got a problem, the old school way of working the problem was just work harder. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, I guess that's the question I have for you. I mean, I was thinking about this, you know, over the last week, you know, obviously when, when it's a team of four people and, and you're all doing just like all hands on deck, right. It's easy to kind of create that company culture, but when you start kind of splitting up into quote unquote, you know, departments and people are kind of doing different tasks and we're dealing with a, a global pandemic and people are working from home for five days a week for part of the year. And then, you know, now we're, we still keep two days a week working from home, but three days in the office, it, it becomes more difficult to create a culture. I think we've done a great job. What's your thoughts on that? I mean, I think you spend a lot of time with your coworkers. So if you don't enjoy what you do and, and who you do it with, then there's an issue. I think we've done a great job. I think we're all kind of moving in that same direction. We all enjoy each other, but I'd be interested to see what your perspective is there. Yeah, I've reflected on this and I read something, I can't remember where, but the keys to creating a work culture are humor, empathy, and empowerment, right? And and I'm often the, the one quick with a joke to disarm people or to build that relationship, oftentimes self-effacing jokes. And then, you know, empathy, I try to make sure that every team, I know every team member, what motivates them, what drives them and put them in a position where they can be as successful as possible. And then empowerment, you know, for me, with every team member and colleague, I want to set them up so at some point I can't afford to pay them anymore, or they just need to go out and do their own thing or go on a different adventure. Like that's my job, I think, as the person kind of steering the ship is to, is to give people all of those opportunities. And that mindset has allowed us to grow over the last year. And we've seen that play out. And from a managerial standpoint, that's where my focus has to be. At this point, we have almost, you know, 10 people now, and we'll probably be there by next year. And it can be a challenge as you grow, but I think we're in a really good position. I, I hate to <laughs> put this on tape and then Lord knows what'll happen. But when you talk to, when I talk to my peers, GPs, sponsors, financial services, professionals, I truly do believe that this fractionalization of ownership and then access to private equity alternatives for the, the mass affluent is in the very early innings. And we're going to see just a huge explosion there. So I, I think we'll continue to try to leverage technology and improve that investor experience. But we'll see. 
remains to be seen, but it's been a hell of a year, man. I want to thank you. Yeah, man. I appreciate it. I, I mean, I appreciate the opportunity just from day one. And like I said, I look forward to where we're going. I think we've got big things ahead. We just got to, we got to focus on what's important to us. And I think we've done a very good job of kind of outlining what is important to us over the last two and a half years. So as long as we focus on that, it's going to be a fun ride. And I look forward to, you know, that opportunity as well. So thank you. So is Ole Miss going to win the SEC next year? <laughs> yeah, I don't think so, man. Um, Lane train, baby. Come on. No, I, I believe in Lane. I think we need, I think we need a new quarterback. I hope he doesn't listen to this pod, the incoming quarterback doesn't listen to this podcast, but based on what I saw in the last year, you know, we're going to need someone like Matt Corral again. So, you know, fingers crossed. I would love to see it in my lifetime at some point, certainly haven't to date, but I don't know that next year is the year. What about Vanderbilt? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) My wife has a term that she uses in her education world with students. Lots of room for improvement. (laughs) I think is the way we're thinking about next year. There's a lot more upside there. Maybe we could win an SEC game. Maybe fingers crossed. There you, you know, go. Um, Baby steps. Shoot for the moon. Like I tell my boys, I've got two little kids. They're not that little anymore, eight and five. But you know, we suffer through football season so that we can celebrate baseball season. So they just re-signed Corbs to an extension and he's gonna stick around a long time. And team looks good this year. So I'm excited. I'd love to try to get to Omaha. I've never been to College World Series here. It's awesome. So we shall see. Well, thanks, my friend. I look forward to seeing you here soon. And thanks again for all the work this year. Absolutely. I appreciate the opportunity and everything you've done for me, man. We'll talk soon. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 